I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2018 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Getting to Know Your Strip-Tilled Soil, Strengths and Weaknesses, is being brought to you by Topcon Agriculture. If this is your first time tuning in, you can subscribe to this series and get updates on future episodes currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you prefer another app for listening to podcasts, let us know, and we'll look to get it added. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAC's boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4-hour nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, strip-till is far and beyond simply the tools used to create an ideal seedbed within several inches of tilled soil. In fact, most of the answers to questions farmers might have about their strip-tilling efforts lie right beneath the surface in the crop's root structure according to expert soil scientist Mike Peterson. As he says, with strip-till, we change the thought process of common fertilization practices, broad-acre tillage, and at times, no-till, is not being very effective or the most efficient method for placing nutrients in the root pathway. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by Topcon Agriculture, Mike digs into what is happening to the physical condition of the soil and the crops strip-tillers plant including how a strip-till system's approach can overcome soil resistance and how certain factors affect the newly emerging seedling and the issues of emergence and root development. So we're going to dig into the nitty-gritty of what a strip-till system is. And I want to to talk a little bit about one of the things that you guys probably are uh, aware of and that is probably your nemesis, compaction. We'll talk about that some. As Jack said, I'm a soil scientist. I have been now for 44 years. And I, I really was happy last night when Dr. McGrath said, you know, that soil scientists, when we were in college, so many of us were always thought that we were the underlings because the engineers were the supposedly smart ones. In this room and with you guys that are going to come to the field today, we're the ones that are going to be outstanding in our field. ha, ha, ha. Take a look at from way, way up high in the air, 537 miles or so. Can you find Iowa on that map where you're looking there? I could point it out with this little red tiny dot, but what I want you to do is to think about, we're going to scope in really clear and come down fast. We've already dropped down now for 557 miles up to about 15,000 feet. We're getting closer and closer to Iowa. And even closer now, maybe you can smell the corn pollen. And for me, my voice is normally not this quite this deep. Corn pollen and I don't agree very well anymore. When I was a boy on the farm, I never had any kind of problem like with corn problem. But you're even getting closer. Now we're getting closer down right near the soil surface. And thinking about it because me being a soil scientist, usually having my head in a soil pit, We can even go all the way down to the very door of a wormhole. And as you can see, I don't know if you can see this little tiny red dot, these are leaves and pieces that he has pulled with his mouth 
and left that right at the door because he likes to stay in his hole. How many of you are aware that an earthworm, especially a vertical boring earthworm, never likes to leave his hole, so he always has his tail remaining in the hole because he'll get lost. Doesn't have eyes, doesn't have a, a way to be able to find himself back, so he likes to stay, keep his, his rear end in the hole. So from a viewpoint that I've had for many, many, many years, I like to be able to look at that. You can see this is a vertical hole. I don't know whether or not that shows as well as it could, but there is a, a, a trench right here from this midden pile down where the worms go until I had some coffee. I don't know if you can you see that over here on this side, folks? There is a, a trench right underneath where that wormhole is that goes down. A vertical drilling worm will go as far, especially in Texas, nine feet. He'll move up and down that hole and he helps make what, whether it's the Lumbricus testris or the Lumbricus rubellus, those two vertical drilling worms are really burrowing and helping open up holes and create big pores to help get water in the soil profile. But I'm not here to speak about worms. That's Odette's job. Odette Menard, uh, a lady from Ontario, Canada, she talks about worms and she gets all fired up about it. Um, and she knows them very intimately because she goes out at night and takes pictures of them and uses spotlights to be able to do that. But let's get even closer. All of you have heard about electron microscopes and seen what those do. Here's a picture of a scanning electron microscope, 1,500 times magnification, and you're looking at uh, Pseudomonas fluorescence. How many of you have ever known anything about Pseudomonas? I'm sure that she could tell you that you do not want to have that in your intestines because then you become Mount Vesuvius and you also become Tennessee Two Trot really fast. That stuff is amazing, but it is in the soil. It creates a lot of opportunities for nitrogen to be able to return to the root systems. So those little tiny guys there that you see that are less than 10 microns in size are on that root surface bringing nitrogen to that plant. So why go to the, from the satellite all the way down to a telescope and, and then into a microscope? It's for you guys to start thinking about what little scene is really important underneath. And that's my profession as a soil scientist, to look at what's down below your feet that you guys know some things about, but really what is happening. And we're gonna even talk about the itty bitty, which is in microns in size. So that magical world that I like to go down into and uh, look at, I have a friend of mine in Western Kansas that says, I never knew you were that tall, Mike. I've always looked at you down there. In the upper four inches of the soil profile, in one ounce, there can be anywhere from four to five billion microbes in that one ounce of soil. Start thinking about that, of all those little one-celled creatures, and how many of those, of those guys are in, a, a, let's say, a gallon of soil. There's more microbes in a gallon of soil than there are people on Earth upwards of uh, two quadrillion. But here in Iowa, we have anywhere from 18 to 52 families of the mi microbes that you really are being helped by to get those roots to do their job. But that's not all that happens. The root system of a plant, especially common cereal rye, creates a lot of 
sugars and polypeptides that it releases and attracts all these little guys and feeds them so that they then feed the root system. As Dr. McGrath said last night, the root system not per se is the big absorber of the nutrient that just because it's in the soil, it's the microbes that live on that root that make it happen. So we not only have the, the microbes that are doing things, but you have earthworms and amoeba, protozoa, nematodes, all of those then eat microbes. It's, their little body is crushed and gone through that particular bug. Then now we have root food. So it's really, really incredible of what we found out in probably the last 15 years as soil scientists that we're seeing more and more microbes are what really feed the root system. And they want that relationship. So those of you that are using cover crops, whether you're using cereals or broadleafs like sun hemp or some pro uh, crop like that, it's releasing different kinds of sugars which are attracting different microbes to really make the job done. All of that fits into a strip-till system because the predominant microbe that gives you the, the best effect is an aerobic one. If they go anaerobic, we start seeing disease potential that really come back into a system. So that's why strip-till makes quite a bit of sense. So it's not just organic matter anymore, ladies and gentlemen. It's really zooming in and starting to have an, a better idea of the microbial action that's going on in that particular soil profile. Let me name off a few of them. Actinomyces. They work organic carbon materials so they can release nitrogen. Alpha proteobacteria. Now, I didn't say anything wrong or nasty there. Alpha proteobacteria convert long and short carbon sources, predominantly converting, making phosphorus available. The bacterioides, as you can see, they put, give you the micronutrients, such as uh, zinc and copper and sulfur. Well, sulfur is a secondary. Molybdenum and manganese. The penicillium, they extract P, or phosphorus, from the labile carbon pools. Spartobacteria, again, another one that uh, supplies it. So as you guys are using cover crop systems or you're using a real sugary plant like corn and you're growing, we can really excite some of these bacteria to help make your root system function properly. But again, remember we have to have oxygen to make this happen. A few others. Beta proteobacteria, such as Burkholdia, Nitrospira, Nitrosomonas, Neisseria. Now, those guys are bad dudes. Neisseria usually don't like a whole lot of oxygen, but guess, look what they do. They bring gonorrhea to people, or meningitis. Not good bugs, so no wonder, I don't know if any of you have ever had the problem. You get into soils that have a lot of pine needles, and if you have any kind of allergies, you watch your skin deteriorate on your fingers. Neisseria. Not a, not a friendly little bug. Then there's these. There's 2,700 different species of Firmicutes. And Firmicutes, as you view, uh, and what we have done, I think, is a disservice to you. We have promoted the idea that nitrogen, nitrogen, nitrogen is your answer. Firmicutes love nitrogen and they'll start taking over and we then get a, a biomass of microbes that are more firmicutes and then a lot of the other guys that I showed you back here, some of those are lost and we don't have very many of them to help you get your phosphorus, potassium, zinc, sulfur created and get back into the soil profile.
So you can see some of uh, those species that are Lactobacillus clostridium, another one that uh, is really good, Streptomyces. Where did we get some of the streptomycin? It came from the soil. And they're the ones that give off some very pleasant soil aromas. Remember your grandfather that told you when you went out and got on the plow, the actual moorboard plow, and he said, smell that soil, that's good rich soil. It was streptomyces that were being broken down. I wanted to give you a chance to see whether or not your stomachs were tough. Right there. Now that's not bad stuff. It's just that the micro microbiology, when I went to college back in the 1800s, we didn't have very many microbiology courses. We had two. If that would have been a, a study that was a lot more advanced like it is now, I think that's what I would have gone into because, ladies and gentlemen, this is what happens in the soil that really makes things work for you because they're the ones that are accessing nutrients and being provided to the plant. That little phosphorus granule is being actually attacked by bacteria and worked on to make a created product to get, be available to the plant. I wanted to tell you about one of the things that's really important in bacteria and their survival rate. It's your soil pH. Who's going to be what, where, and what communities are they living in? Firmicutes. Here in eastern Iowa, they like pHs of 5.5 to 5. Actinobacteria really create opportunities for nitrogen. 5.5 to 6.2. Bacterioides, 6.5. And the acidobacteria, they do best in higher pHs. Here's another one that uh, is really important in helping getting uh, products available to the plants. Pseudomonas pudia. In your belly, not a good thing. In a stomach of a cow, wonderful. Because that's really what helps break down the cellulose fibers to get uh, the cow energy. So whether you're looking at a slightly acid soil or a neutral soil, knowing some of the things about who does what in, the, in that soil profile is, I think is effective to help us know of whether or not we've got a soil profile that's really going to do a better job for us as we uh, till with a strip-till machine. We'll get back to Mike's discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. Agronomy matters, and Topcon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAC's boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, Mike emphasized the importance of putting an analytical eye on soil health, looking beyond organic matter and deeper into the microbial activity in a soil profile. He cited several types of microbes which can assist with different aspects of soil health with each playing a role in cycling nutrients or feeding the soil. Knowing what type of benefits these microbes provide is essential, Mike says, to understand the needs of different soil types in a strip-till system. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Mike Peterson on the valuable role microbes play in nutrient management. So I want to focus a little bit on nitrogen quickly. Under all of the millions of acres of soils that we have, 
Microbes only work in the upper 10 to 12 inches predominantly. If you're down below that, we're going to be looking at anaerobic conditions. There are over 400 different species that really facilitate N. Eight of different pathways are being able to use to recreate that. And then there's the archaea bacteria. They are microbes that do not have a nucleus, just so you know. So you can see that there's about 450 different species that are really creating the activity to get nitrogen available to a plant. The most effective habitat, excuse me, most effective pathway for microbes to do their job is habitat, that's the soil environment, plus temperature. I don't know if some of you have I said before, and I talk a lot about it, corn roots like to grow between 53 and 63 degrees Fahrenheit. So when that temperature's there, we can get a certain number of bugs to do their job. The next most effective pathway for nitrogen to be available to the plant by microbes is habitat plus precipitation. So water's important. Then after that is habitat plus organic carbon. So the buildup of we, what we want to do as we're trying to return the soil, um, the residues that we leave on top, that's important. Then lastly, soils and pH. Then there are those predators like amoeba that like to eat bacteria. A little bit about phosphorus, because they're the kind of main two here, nitrogen and phosphorus. Aspergillus and penicillin, pseudomonads, bacillus and spartobacteria, and some actuminomycetes and the other names that are there. I'm going to get my tongue all twisted up, won't be able to say another word. All of those are really what help get phosphorus available. Now, I'm going to bring this to a point. What you're looking at here, ladies and gentlemen, is what do I know whether or not I've got these kinds of critters in my soil profile? There are several labs in the United States that now you can take a soil sample. It's usually about a quart in size. You got to put it into a special bag. You got to cool it and send it to these labs. And each sample costs you about 250 bucks. But if you want to know what your soils have for bacteria, we now know that we can send that and you can get a report back to what you have. But not very many soil scientists can give you a good idea or your, your field agronomist what's going to help you. So that's why I wanted to be able to share with you this morning what you have when you get one of those kinds of tests. And I would recommend it if you're really looking at whether or not your soils are doing what you want, even with your cover crops that you're doing, and strip-till, get some of this done. And it's well known that uh, mycorrhizal fungi uh, are the ones that really help you get a lot of phosphorus available to the soil profile. How many of you know what mycorrhizal fungi do? Mycorrhizal fungi, are, they create a spore. I'm going to get tangled up here yet. They create a spore that lives in the soil profile upwards of 15 to 20 years, some of them even longer. And as the root grows by it, it re it's releasing secretions and excretions. The secretions are helpful. The excretions are really it's kind of the waste material that's being dumped off the root. What they do is that in, within a short distance, upwards of a half inch away from that root, that spore is excited, and it sends out what they call an oppressori. I don't know if you've looked at really close at what the mosquito proboscis looks like before he pokes the nose into your arm and then gives you a stab and then you know you got a skeeter bite and you're trying to scratch it. 
that oppressoride then reaches the root and sends in a substance to irritate the root. It lubricates it, and now it goes in and starts its new life inside that root cell. And then what it does when it matures a little bit, it sends out a hyphae upwards of four inches long, and now it feeds its host because it's a very symbiotic relationship. And mycorrhiza fungi is very, very important for phosphorus. In fact, corn has to have mycorrhiza fungi to really do a good job of uptake of phosphorus. So if you do too much tillage, we can obliterate mycorrhiza fungi. A little bit about phosphorus. It becomes better known that we also need to know about our concentration of iron in the soil and also how soil temperature is going to help break down the carbon to be able to make it soluble so that phosphorus is available. This is a, I don't know if this is a well-known fact to you. You add commercial pea, especially in the West where I live, we even have less. It's about 30% effective because it will fix very, very quickly. In a high calcium carbonate soil, phosphorus can fix in approximately 90 hours, very, very quickly. Most of the good guys are aerobes, and I kind of wanted to share that and stress it a little bit. So I've muddled up your brain waves, not to just because you ate too much bacon this morning, but you know, your brain waves have been muddled a little bit. My reason is to give you a, an idea about what's going on your, below your feet, because as you saw in uh, one of the presentations, if you looked at three big intersecting circles, where is soil health? Soil health is a combination of soil health, soil tilth, soil quality, soil biodiversity, and soil life. And I think strip till is part of the game. So a little bit about soil tilth quickly. To really know whether or not you've got really good soil health and soil tilth is pore space. And we're going to talk about pore space out in the field. There are four different sizes of pores, two to five millimeter, one to two millimeter, one, milli, one, ten, one millimeter down to two tenths of a millimeter, and all of those pores that are less than two tenths in size. You can't see those with the naked eye. Which one of those you suppose is the most important? The medium sized pore, which is one to two millimeters. The reason is the tension, here comes my soil physics, the tension of the soil and the tension of the root that's trying to bring the water away from that soil profile is most conducive at the medium-sized pore. And all of the studies and hundreds of the holes that I've dug and looking at pore space, strip-till can help advocate the medium-sized pore better than no-till and better than conventional tillage. So you're in the right place, guys. Tillage and organic amendments and fertilization all can lead to helping make this be a positive impact or it can also have sometimes a negative impact. So let's look at a little bit about pores. There's a vertical pore that comes down through here where this yellow is showing. You can see this is about one centimeter in size. Um, this is then a, a micrograph that shows you the clear lines are where the air is. You can see where the pores are contiguous. Same thing over here. You can see that is stab and hold that thing still. That is a vertical pore that's going way deep in the soil profile. This is approximately four inches by four inches, one decimeter. But again, the three main pore sizes are large being two to five, medium one to two, small less than one. 
So you can get an idea that if you start getting those pores to block, then we don't have good oxygen and carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, different, the sulfur and the nitrous oxide won't move in and out of the soil profile. When we get a compacted soil, we've got problems. With strip tillage, I've observed, as Jack said this morning, I added it up and changed it this morning. With the pit that I dug and the help with my buddies, uh, I reached 1,650 just the other day. And in that, looking at the chance to help porosity will help your soil be more healthy, have better soil tilth. We can help improve aggregates to be stable, and we're going to look at those this afternoon. We're going to aid and abet fungi, mainly the mycorrhiza, and we're not squeezing and smearing the soil when we do vertical-type strip till. We can change the way roots will grow Instead of a root coming down and making a right-hand turn and then never being able to get deeper in the profile, strip tillage helps do that. But we're trying to help this becoming living in harmony with all the things that I was talking to you about bugs. It's all the capture of the thought that we're going to go into here about providing a good start for the plant, having a healthy root system so that we can get to a potential. Are roots even important in the first months of growth? Oh my, heavens to Betsy. When we're trying to reach a root-to-soil interface that's up to 190 times larger than the leaf space that we have, I think it's incredibly important. I've been able to measure it. It takes about eight and a half hours to do this. I remember my supervisor at one time saw me out there counting roots, and uh, he made tracks to get away from that because he said, I don't want to be here. It takes eight hours to measure a full root system, and you can measure underneath a corn plant upwards between 25,000 and 38,000 linear inches of roots. How many feet is that? It's over a quarter of a mile. Under one root system with a plant that's 108 inches tall, we have a root system underneath that's 231 times larger than the plant is above ground. So what's the big whoop of this? Too much tillage, poor harvesting techniques, all are gonna cause us problems. This is the big whoop. It all leads to a very dense, non-porous soil, wrong microbes, ponds up, runs off, atmosphere loses nitrogen. We've got a poor root system, and it creates compaction. Here is a map of compaction. I colorized it a little bit. Uh, this is after, you can see right where that little black mark is in the middle. Hopefully this will show. It's right somewhere right in the middle there. That's where the till zone was. And this soil compacted immediately right back. So where you can see the red and the yellow, we're upwards of three megapascals, which is a measurement of force. That soil is very, very dense. But the root system could go right down the middle and eventually get deeper into the soil profile. So let me summarize. We know that microbes are incredibly important. We know that as a soil nerd, which I am, and my wife has said that now that uh, she says she's known you for 47 years. You are a soil nerd. And my daughter, who is a um, lab technician in the hospital, says, it's all right, Dad. I'm a nerd about poop and pee. So making nutrients are really, very really important when we start thinking about bacteria. I wanted to share that with you. With strip-till, we can aid in the simulation, stimulation of worms and bacteria to make it happen so that the underground critters are doing their job. The pH of your soils is incredibly important, and that's one of the tests that you do frequently in your soil test. 
but it dictates who's in the microbial world. It also dictates when you apply and put a cover crop in there, is it helping you create more bacteria and the right ones to do the job. Soil compaction is a big deterrent of soil health. Strip-till methodology helps improve that so that we can get soil health to be much more helpful. Well, thank you, Mike, for sharing your perspective and insight on improving soil health and taking a deeper look beneath the soil profile. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And don't forget, you can keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Strip-Till F-A-R-M-R and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on November 16th for the next episode in our 2018 podcast series. And a reminder that you can still register to receive our Strip-Till Farmer print publication at striptillfarmer.com. For Mike Peterson, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening. <music>